Well, we are continuing this morning with our study through the pastoral letters. Specifically, we are in 1 Timothy. Um, in this letter, we know that uh, Paul asked Timothy to <coughs> serve as pastor at the church in Ephesus. There were some problems in that church with leaders and other teachers who were teaching what Paul described as strange doctrines. Timothy was a younger man in his 30s, maybe early 40s. Uh, he had faithfully served with the Apostle Paul for a number of years, but still it was going to be difficult for him to confront men who were all, in all likelihood older than him about the things they were teaching. So Paul begins the letter by emphasizing the fact that Paul himself was an apostle called out by the Lord Jesus Christ according to the commandment of God. So he's making it very clear from the very beginning that he, that all that he's exhorting Timothy to do, he does under the authority of Almighty God. So that will make a hard situation easier for Timothy uh, when he brings these things to the church's attention. Well, Paul laid out some of the false teaching that was going on, but more than that, Paul lays out the importance of sound teaching. And throughout this letter, he's going to emphasize the need for sound teaching in the church. He says that the goal for instruction must be love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So there needs to be a focus on love for God and love for people. And there's gonna, if, that's, if that's going to be the focus, then the only way that can become reality is through the gospel. Paul talks about how the law of God leads one to see our need before Jesus Christ. The law shows us that we are lawless and rebellious before him. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Therefore, we are all deserving of God's condemnation. That's bad news, for sure, but that leads us to the good news of the gospel. Paul calls it the glorious gospel of the blessed God in verse 11. It's the gospel that God had entrusted to Paul. I mean, just an amazing thing for Paul as he considers this. And that's just what he begins to do then. Beginning in verse 12, he begins to digress somewhat. And think about how God had saved him. Even though he was a violent, a violent man, a blasphemer, a persecutor of the church, God had mercy on him. Jesus intervened in Paul's life, made it clear that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. He enabled Paul to believe. Paul put his faith in Jesus Christ, and he was saved. So he knew from firsthand experience that the grace of God was really just more than abundant for him, just overflowing. And then Paul quoted from one of the trustworthy sayings that the early church used to express clear, sound, biblical doctrine. The trustworthy saying, by the way, let me mention, I forgot to mention this last week when we first read this verse. I've mentioned before that the phrase trustworthy saying shows up in five different places in the pastoral letters, the only place it shows up. And it seems very much to me that it's, it is referring to uh, various confessions, creeds that the early church used in their worship service. So I point that out to say that's the reason we do the same thing, because that's what the early church did. So we had their example. So that's the reason that we actually did that today, and we do that in, most, in, well, in all of our services. Well, this particular trustworthy saying says this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I mean, just a wonderful statement. It's really the gospel in a nutshell is what it is. And Paul is not only rejoicing in the truth, the sound doctrine that that statement lays out. 
he's also rejoicing in how that truth changed his life. So in the verses that we're considering this morning, we're continuing to look, as we started last week, at how Paul rejoiced in the Lord because of how his own life was transformed by the Lord. So let's read 1 Timothy 1, 15 to 17. It's a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 17, as you see here, as he, is where he closes out this particular paragraph, and he closes it with a doxology. And what, his remembering about how the Lord had changed his life through Jesus Christ really causes Paul just to, to break out in praise. He gives praise to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. The word for eternal is literally translated of the ages, king of the ages. So God is the sovereign king of all the ages all the epics of history. That would include the eternal age, so to speak, before the world ever began. He is the king of all the ages, which would also include, obviously, the age in which Paul lived, his time in history. So let's look at what Paul is leading us to praise the king of the ages for. So our first main point on your outline is this. The king of the ages sent the eternal son into the world to save sinners. As we consider the trustworthy statement that we find in verse 15, there's several things to take note of. Some of these we mentioned last week as we got started on it. The word trustworthy or faithful makes it clear that what's being said is absolutely, completely, 100% true. And since it's completely, 100% true, It should be fully accepted by all. Anything that is completely 100% true, you're a fool if you don't believe it because it's true, no doubt. Well, that's what this is, obviously true. It makes sense that you would fully accept it as being true. Now, let's look at several other truths that are clearly communicated through this simple, to-the-point, faithful saying. First is this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of all kinds, not to condemn First, we should note here the fact that Christ Jesus came into the world, acknowledges that he existed before he came into the world. So this makes it clear that this one who came into the world clearly existed before the world was created. We also know that he himself is one with the king eternal. He's the eternal son of God who came into the world as a baby, as a human being. Furthermore, we also know, it says he came into the world. Scripture also tells us that it was the king of the ages who actually sent his son into the world. We see that in several places. Uh, John 3.16 and 1 John 4.9 tell us that God sent his only son, sent his only begotten son into the world. Romans 8.32 says God did not spare his own son, but deliver him over for us all. I think that's one of the things that Paul has in mind when he gives honor and glory to the king eternal. 
Christ came into the world because the king sent him into the world. It's also important to know that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The king eternal was under no obligation to provide salvation for those who rebelled against him. What we all deserve is judgment. God would have been perfectly just to send his son into the world, not to provide salvation, but to bring the judgment that, is all, that we all deserve. He would have been just in doing that. That's why verses like John 3.16 are so important. John 3.16-18, read what this is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Christ's second coming is going to have a major focus on judgment. But Christ's first coming the major focus was to save. The major focus was to save men, women, boys, girls, people that are rich, people that are poor, people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That was the purpose. And so if we trust, as it says here, in him as our Lord and Savior, we will be saved. There's a second truth about Christ coming to the world that we need to take note of here. Christ Jesus came into the world not merely to offer salvation, but certainly save sinners. So it doesn't say that Christ came to make salvation possible. It doesn't say that Christ came to open the door for salvation. It doesn't say that Christ came to purchase a salvation that might never be accepted. If all Jesus did was offer a potential salvation, he failed. He did not come to try to save. He came to actually save for eternity. Now think about this question here. Was it possible that Jesus Christ could provide salvation from sin and no one accept it? (laughs) No one be saved. Many people would say yes to that. I believe the answer is no, and I believe the scripture says it's no. He did not come to try to save. He came to save. That's what the verse says. Um, Matthew 121 can help us understand this a little better probably. This when the angel came to Joseph, um, the husband of Mary, and says this of their new son, You shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. Call him Jesus because he will save his people. Who are his people? That's the next question. Well, the Bible uses terms like those who were chosen before the foundation of the world. Chosen by the king eternal, by the way. Before the foundation of the world for salvation. It speaks of those who are the elect of God. It speaks of those who are predestined to salvation. That's his people. It also says this about his people. 
His people are described as those who will believe in his name. He will save all those who will believe in his name, all of them. And he will, so therefore he begins that good work of salvation and completes it all the way to the end. How do we know that for sure? We know it because Christ Jesus came into the world to save, completely save sinners, to save his people from their sins. That's a trustworthy statement, and it's deserving of full acceptance. There's a third point here about the king of ages, sending the eternal son into the world to save sinners, and that's this. It's only those people who actually recognize and admit to being sinners who can be saved. In both, in both verse 15 and 16, Paul not only quotes this great doctrinal statement about the gospel, but he also applies it directly to himself. Verse 15, Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners. And then he adds this, among whom I am foremost of all. That wasn't part of the trustworthy statement. That was Paul's personal application. Among whom I am foremost of all. If you remember back in verse 13, Paul described himself as a former blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor. But even though that was true, he also says, the grace of our Lord was more than abundant to me. So Paul is amazed that, Paul, that, that God would save a sinner like him. He's being honest about his sin. He's admitting that he was and continued to sin against the Lord. The only people that Christ Jesus came into the world to save were sinners. But they have to be people who admit to being sinners. Christ didn't come to save nice people. He didn't come to save good people. In Luke 5, the Pharisees are showing their disapproval of Jesus because he was hanging around. He was eating a meal with the, the known sinners of the, of the town. Well, let me read to you what Jesus had to say to them. This is in Luke 5, 31 and 32. Jesus answered and said, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So the gospel is not meant to massage our self-worth. It's not meant to make us feel good about ourselves. The gospel calls us out as sinners who deserve hell. But the gospel then glorifies Jesus Christ as the only one who can save sinners. It's all about God's glory. It's all about the glory and honor of the king of the ages. Finally, to further build on that, we see this next point. God's salvation of a notorious sinner like Paul is a demonstration of the fact that he can save anyone. He can save anyone. Read those verses again, 15 and 16. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. So in verse 15, Paul called himself the foremost of sinners. In verse 16, he once again refers to himself as the foremost of sinners. Why would he do that a second time? Obviously, he's emphasizing it because it's an important point. He wants to make sure he gets across. 
but he's actually making a couple different applications of that for the people like us who are reading this. First time, Paul is emphasizing a person really must admit that they're a sinner if they're going to be saved. Paul admits to being the worst of all of them. So a full admission of his own sin. The second time he uses it, Paul says that Jesus Christ saved Paul, saved himself, as an encouraging example to others. Paul was a notoriously wicked sinner. Christ demonstrated, he says, perfect patience toward Paul by allowing him to continue in his sin for a while with perfect patience before he finally intervened. There are people who feel like they are too bad for God to save them. They've done too many things that are just so bad. You've probably heard people say that. I have. Paul is saying that the fact that God saved a notorious sinner like him is meant to be encouragement for others, no matter what their past has been, that he can save them too. He came into the world to save sinners, even the worst of the bunch. So don't let anybody tell you, oh, I'm too bad for the gospel. No, you're not. If you know you're a sinner, you're primed for the gospel. Now, it's at this point, Paul closes that digression that he's, he's been making, making application to, of God's grace in his own life. And that's when he, the doxology just seems to kind of just flow out of him. Verse 17 again. Now, to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So we get our second main point from this verse. The king of the ages is worthy of all glory and praise. Paul wrote of all these things that we've been talking about in verses 12 to 16. And it was as a result of him pondering the glorious gospel that he has been once again speaking to Timothy about to make sure he emphasized in the church. A gospel that he knows he's been entrusted with. He thanks the Lord for showing mercy to someone like him, not giving him what he deserved. He also thanks the Lord for the, just the overwhelming flood of grace that came to him and fully saved him. Even though he was a ruthless and violent man, he was saved. He gives thanks for the Lord for calling him into ministry, giving him the strength he needed for all that he endured. He thanks the Lord for showing such abundant grace to such a terrible sinner. He is grateful for the Lord's perfect patience toward him that not only saved him, but actually served as an encouraging example to others. And as he thinks about all these things, Paul is overwhelmed. And it's in that context that this doxology of worship is written. Matthew Henry made this observation. This is a quote on your outline. He says, those who are sensible of their obligations to the mercy and grace of God will have their hearts enlarged in his praise. The Christian faith is not only about understanding the truth of the scriptures. It's not only about standing firm for sound doctrine. It is about that, but that's not only what it's about. It's also about being moved to worship the Lord 
that we know clear that the scripture teaches us about. Taking it back to what he said, the goal of our instruction is love. In other words, it's loving the Lord with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your strength. So it's not just knowing it in your mind. It's that there is affectionate praise that comes also. Well, Paul begins his doxology by praising God, saying this first, God is the king eternal. Well, the fact that he is king speaks of the fact that he is Lord, the absolute sovereign over all things. He is sovereign over every aspect of his creation. He is the most high Lord and king over heaven and earth. He's the king of the ages. Well, there's a couple things I want to mention that are inherent in speaking of the Lord as the king eternal. First one is this. He has no beginning and no end. He has no beginning and no end. There are things that have no end, but they have a beginning. Angels will fit in that category. Angels are created by God. They're going to exist for eternity. The soul of every human being who's ever been born in the history of the world has a beginning, but we, our souls are going to live eternally, either in everlasting, endless happiness with the Lord in heaven or endless misery in hell. But every soul, human soul, will live eternally. But only God not only has no end, but also has no beginning. He's the only one in that category. He's the king eternal. So God is not bound by any measure of time. I mean, you can't describe God by using hours, days, months, years, decades, generations, whatever. He's not bound by any measure of time. He's eternal. He has no beginning and no end. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, this makes it very clear that God, the sovereign king and great creator, existed before the beginning of the earth, before the beginning of any created thing. Now, there's a number of implications of the fact that God is eternal. There's actually, you can think about, ponder this for a long time. I'm just going to mention a few things that I think are important to think about here. Point number two, there is no change. There is no change in God regarding his character, his knowledge, and his decrees. No change because he's eternal. The fact that God is eternal means that he doesn't change. That's because he's fully independent. He depends on nothing. He depends on no one for his existence. All of us are completely opposite from that. There are all kinds of things we depend on for our existence. God depends on nothing, completely independent. So since he's fully independent, he cannot be affected or changed by anything. He has existed in divine perfection for all eternity. That will never change. This means his character never changes. He is forever and always holy. He is forever and always righteous. He's forever and always just. He's forever and always wise. 
He's forever and always powerful. He's forever and always good. He's forever and always full of truth. As the eternal king, his character never changes. We change constantly. We change really daily in our physical appearance and the things that we understand, the things that we might forget that we used to know. I mean, there's all kinds of things where we are changing regularly. God is eternal. Therefore, there is never any change in his character. God is also perfect and unchangeable in his knowledge because he's eternal. Since God is not bound by time in any way, all things are present to him. Nothing is past, nothing is future, as far as the essence of who God is. But also, nothing is past or future as far as his knowledge is concerned. He doesn't lose knowledge. He doesn't gain knowledge. Acts 15, 18 says, Known unto God are all things from the beginning of the world. But we also have to say this, in the eternal counsel of God, what he knows and decrees is brought forth in a particular order in time. So this moves us into speaking about God's decrees. The scripture tells us that he decrees all things whatsoever come to pass. God is never taken by surprise by anything. God is never in the position of having to rethink his plans, to rethink his purpose, or to say, oh, I made a mistake there. I need to rethink. That never happens. How can you rethink something when you have perfect knowledge and it never changes? You know everything. If you knew everything, every plan you make would work out exactly right because you knew everything is going to happen. But we don't know. That's how we make plans. And tomorrow they're going to change probably because of the weather or whatever. God's knowledge is perfect. Never changes. His decrees never change. He decreed, for example, that the Son of God would come into the world as a man to save sinners. He decreed all that he would suffer and endure so that sinners could be saved, that we sang in, through Psalm 22. He decreed, in fact, that his people would be saved. Ephesians 1.4 says this, God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world so that we could be holy and blameless in him. That happened before the foundation of the world. It's uncomfortable, I know, for a lot of people, but it's what the Bible says. It's just what it says. That's why we know the trustworthy saying is true and worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We know that because our God is the King Eternal. And and his decrees never change. And he decreed this. Surely that's part of what Paul had in mind when he made this doxology here at the end after all that he had been pondering about the gospel. Next, Paul gives praise because God is the king immortal. He's the king immortal. To be immortal is to be incorruptible. Some of your versions may actually use that word, incorruptible, instead of immortal. 
So God is perfect in his being, his wisdom, his power, his holiness, his justice, his goodness and truth, perfect. That can never be corrupted. Nothing about his essence, nothing about his character can ever be stained or compromised in any way. So he's not like us. <laughs> I mean, first off, there's not a single area in our life in which we have reached perfection. You can pick the area of your life where you think you do the best. You're not perfect even in that one area. Nobody is. Nobody is. But secondly, even in the areas that we're doing pretty well in, that we actually are pretty mature in compared to what we used to be, we are regularly stained with sin in the way we think and some thoughts and uh, attitudes, words, actions, whatever. In other words, we're corruptible. Even the best things about us are corruptible. Paul recognized that in himself when he said, in a present tense, I am the foremost of sinners. The apostle, probably one of the best Christians in in the history of the world, continuing to describe himself in the present tense, I'm the foremost of sinners. So even with a life changed by the Lord, Paul still dealt with sin, and so do we. We are not immortal in that sense. We are corruptible. But this is something that should cause us to regularly rejoice in the glorious gospel of the blessed God about. Christ Jesus saves sinners like us, corruptible sinners like us. And that salvation includes full forgiveness for every sin, every single one that comes out of our corruption. Our salvation also includes perfect righteousness before God in Christ that can never be diluted or compromised in any way. So every aspect of our corruption is forgiven in Christ. We stand before God completely righteous in Christ. So the answer to our corruptibleness is the fact that our God isn't corruptible. And he provided salvation for us. The more you think about this, the more you could think, boy, Paul could have made this doxology longer. There's so much to praise God about from this. So by God's overflowing grace, every believer stands before the king eternal, immortal, as completely righteous in Christ. Every time we call that truth to mind, we should give God honor and glory. Next, Paul gives praise. We're going to think some more here. God is the king invisible. He's the king invisible. Catechism for boys and girls, which I like a lot because it's so simple and it's so good, says this, has this question. One of the questions is, can you see God? Their answer is, no, I cannot see God, but he always sees me. Why can't you see God? He doesn't, I'm going beyond, beyond the catechism now. Because he's invisible. He's spirit. You can't see spirit. Spirit is real, but you can't see spirit. Cannot see God, but he always sees me. Another catechism question says this. What is God? Well, the answer is on your outline. God is a spirit and does not have a body like man. Pretty simple, but pretty important. 
so many people imagine God with a body. I remember growing up, and I grew up in church, but I had an image of God as an old man with white hair sitting on a throne on a cloud. That's completely wrong. There's nothing about that that's right. But that's the image I had in my mind. That's, that's not true. God is spirit. He doesn't have arms and legs and a nose and a mouth. God is spirit. He's invisible. It's because God is spirit, he can be in all places at all times. In fact, we are told that the heavens and the highest heavens can't contain him. So God is not just eternal spirit as far as how long he's existed. He's infinite spirit as far as where he is. There is no boundary to God. Heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain him. So wherever this universe peters out, as I've said before, God goes beyond that. He is eternal. He is infinite spirit. That's also why the Bible says God is one. He's not made up of parts. Doesn't have arms, legs, all this. Like I said, he's one because he's spirit. It's in the glorious gospel of the blessed God that we see how sinners can be fully reconciled to the king eternal, immortal, invisible. He's not just the God. As Christians, he is our God. We are his children. In Christ, we have complete access to the Lord. We are promised that he will never leave us. He will never forsake us because we're his. We belong to him. And knowing that the king, our king, is invisible, that he's the always present spirit, that is such a helpful reminder that when the Bible says he will never forsake us, he's always there. There is never a place where you go. There is never a situation you are in where your God is not present with you. Never. That's encouraging. No, we cannot see God, but he always sees me. He always sees you. So it's no wonder that Paul ends up with a doxology of praise after speaking of the effect of the gospel in his life. Well, look again at verse 17 and look at how he closes this doxology. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So here, Paul makes it clear that God is the only true God and therefore deserves all glory and honor to the ages of the ages. There are many so-called little g-gods. In Ephesus, where Timothy was ministering, they served and worshipped the idol Artemis. Uh, The temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The worship of Artemis took place all over Asia, but it was focused in Ephesus, where Timothy is pastor. Many, many built their whole lives around the worship of Artemis, but Artemis is a little g-god, just an idol. The number of little g-gods that people worship is basically endless. We can make an idol out of almost anything. I think the main little G-God in America right now 
is probably the God of personal identity. We're being constantly pressed to love ourselves, be who you are, follow your heart, believe in yourself. In other words, let your desires be the main motivating factor in your life. There are so many people enslaved to this little G God of personal identity. Paul knew very well what it was like to be enslaved by sin. He was painfully aware of how his, he had allowed his own personal zeal and hatred to become the motivating factor in his life. But praise God, Christ transformed him, changed his life. His life was transformed by the amazing, overflowing grace of God. So now he loved and served the one true God, the only God. So since the king eternal, immortal, invisible is the only God, it makes sense that we should honor and glorify him with our life. That's how he ends. To honor is to show high esteem, to show respect, is to treat one with dignity that is deserved, is to show reverence, veneration, worship would fit there. Glory is to be given to the one true God. Glory speaks of splendor and magnificence. It reminds us that the one true God is deserving of the highest praise and adoration. And everything that Paul has written in these verses all exalt the sovereign king. He rules over all. Even if we reject him, he is still the sovereign king. And if one continues to reject him, then we'll be eternally condemned. But we praise God for his perfect patience toward us just like he showed to Paul. So believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. He came into the world to save sinners like you and me. So how long should we honor and glorify God? Forever and ever, literally, to the ages of the ages, is what this says. I mentioned a couple catechism questions earlier. We'll close with one more. A lot of you probably know this one. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever to the ages of the ages. And as Paul concludes his paragraph with amen, that's let it be so. Lord, we thank you for your word. I thank you for how just the work you did in Paul's life and how you used Paul to communicate these amazing truths, life-changing truths to Timothy, people all through the these New Testament times, all through the, the generations, the centuries that have fallen, and to us as well. So we thank you so much for this word, for this testimony to us. Lord, I want to thank you for how it helps us exalt our understanding of who you are. Just even three simple words like eternal, immortal, incorruptible. Just as we ponder those words just a little bit, it really helps us exalt and see who you really are as the one true God. Lord, help us to grow in our honor and glorifying of you in our lives. Every one of us, thank you for the time for that death show up. There's times through the day that we think of praising you and giving you thanks. Thank you for those times. I just ask, even in my own life too, that that would be more often because you deserve our praise to the end of the ages.
if you're one who's never put your faith in Jesus Christ, I mean, what a glorious gift is offered to you because of Christ. He is the Savior of sinners. So a prayer like this will be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I am a sinner. I haven't measured up. I don't do what I should do all the time. But I thank you that, you've, that Jesus Christ is the Savior. And I want to receive him as my Savior. I admit my sins. I need a Savior. I want Jesus Christ as my Savior, and I commit myself to him to be the Lord of my life. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can make a note on your tear-off. Those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website. It is in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray.